It's election night on November 7th, 1876. America is now 100 years old. And in those 100 years, it has argued over slavery, it's then violently fought over it throughout the Civil War, and now it's trying to figure out what a United States of America looks like without slavery. Since the Civil War, only Republicans have held the White House. Lincoln, Johnson, Grant. But now, as the results for the 1876 election are rolling in by telegraph, it doesn't look good for Republican candidate Rutherford B. Hayes. He's behind by a significant number of electoral votes, and it's not just the South that he's losing. He also is finding out he's lost Connecticut, Indiana, Kentucky, Maryland, The list keeps growing. By the time he heads to sleep that November night, Hayes is sure that the election is over and that he's lost. He has no clue that it's going to take another four months, four crazy, contentious, chaotic months, full of congressional commissions and Supreme Court justices, to find out for sure. And he has absolutely no idea that after all of that, will actually be declared the winner. I'm Lillian Cunningham with the Washington Post, and this is the 19th episode of Presidential. I'll resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. What your country can do for you, a state which will live in Rutherford B. Hayes was born in Ohio in 1822. He was a very frail, sick little boy for the first few years of his life. He had auburn hair that turned brown when he was an adolescent and then white as he got older, and he had deep-set blue eyes. Now, normally this is where I'd turn to someone at the Library of Congress to walk me through the character of the president and some of his early documents. But Rutherford B. Hayes was actually the first president whose family built a presidential library for him. So the Library of Congress doesn't have his papers. Coincidentally, this Memorial Day marks the 100th anniversary of the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Center. So all of that is to say I decided to call up their executive director. Her name is Christy Weininger, and I asked her to give me the inside read on Ruddy, which is what his friends and family called him. Good afternoon, Hayes Presidential Center. Can I help you? Hi, this is Lillian Cunningham from the Washington Post. Um, I I have a call with Christy. Uh, Yes, just one moment, please. This is Christy. Hi, Christy. This is Lillian Cunningham. Hi, Lillian. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. So there aren't a ton of biographers out there who specialize in studying Mm -hmm. Rutherford B. Hayes. So um, I was hoping that you could help paint a portrait of what he was like, maybe even just starting with his childhood and, you know, those early days of his life. Yeah, I I sure can. Um, So he was 
he had a very interesting upbringing. Um, his father passed away two months before he was born, so he never knew his father. His parents were originally from Vermont, and they moved here to Ohio. You know, they come seeking their fortunes in the West, which Ohio was part of the West uh, in the early 1800s. And um, his father was a whiskey distiller. He and his wife, Sophia, had four or five children. Unfortunately, the older children died, and that was hard on both of them, um, particularly Sophia. And then and then she has the tragedy of her husband dying. So um, she was kind of a dour person. Um, you know, life had been very difficult for her, and she was one of those people that kind of saw the glass half full, or yeah, glass half, half empty. empty. So she becomes very, very protective of Rutherford and his older sister, Fanny. These are her last two remaining children. So you can understand why she was pretty protective. But she was she was very critical as well. And um, that was something that just kind of chafed him his whole childhood. You know, they got along. You know, she loved him and, and his sister immensely. But she was just kind of grouchy. And mm-hmm. so there was a a little bit of tension there between the two of them sometimes. The father figure in his life became his uncle, uh, his mother's brother, Sardis Burchard. And Sardis built the home here at Spiegel Grove, where uh, the Hayes Presidential Library and Museums is now. He built it right before the Civil War, and he told his nephew, you know, you and your family are going to own this someday. So that's how Rutherford and Lucy ended up here in Fremont. But Hayes was very driven. Um, you know, he but he kind of happened upon things accidentally. Um, you know, he was a hard worker. He became a lawyer by trade. He worked very hard um, to get his law practice off the ground. He married his wife, Lucy, in 1852, and they were just a a wonderful couple. She, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, she was the first first lady who had graduated college. Is that right? That's right. She um, graduated from the Cincinnati Wesleyan Female College. We have some copies of her essays here. Um, She had been raised in a devout Methodist environment, and so religion was something that was very, very important to her. So in, in a lot of her essays, she writes about Christianity and the importance of Christianity to our country. It was kind of interesting because Rutherford, on the other hand, was a was a bit of an agnostic, and he never joined a church. Hmm. But he was he was a spiritual person. He actually read the Bible a lot. Although he makes a comment in his diary that he reads the Bible more as a scholar than from a religious point of view. But you know, when he was president of the United States, he opened up um, every cabinet meeting with a with a prayer. He was a very spiritual person, but he was not, you know, a real fan of organized religion. He thought there was too many politics involved in organized religion. But Lucy went to church every single Sunday. So it's very interesting that a couple that thought so highly of each other and, and you know, had very similar morals and values um, differed quite a bit on religion. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And she then ends up most known, at least now, as Lemonade Lucy, right, for her, um, right. you know, and, yeah. and that was banning alcohol in the White as, House. And... Right, as the, as the um, prohibition movement gained some traction in the early 1900s, they went back and they they looked at the fact that the Hazes didn't serve alcohol in the White House, and, and they gave her this 
derogatory name of, of Lemonade Lucy. You know, she, she had been dead for decades, but um, now this was a term that, as best we can determine, a reporter started calling her. So this isn't, she was never called that in her lifetime. Oh, but, interesting. Yeah. You know, they were not prohibitionists. Uh, they were they were temperance people, which meant that alcohol should be consumed in moderation. And uh, In fact, Rutherford writes in his diary that he was not in favor of laws regulating alcohol because he didn't feel like laws should regulate people's morals and values, that you, you tried to do that through education and then you let people make their own decisions. But even though Lucy was a very temperate person, it was actually Rutherford's decision not to serve alcohol. And that was a political decision because people were leaving the Republican Party and joining the Temperance Party. And of course, he was trying to keep his party together. So by not serving alcohol in the White House, he was trying to send a signal politically. So you must obviously spend a lot of time thinking about Hayes, given your job and your place of work. Um, Could you describe what do you think it would be like to walk into a room and meet him for the first time or to go on a blind blind date with him, you know, if, if you knew nothing about him? What kind of personality did he have and what sort of charisma or extroversion, introversion? Yeah. Oh gosh, that's a that's a great way to to phrase the question um, because obviously we work here and that's something that we talk <laughs> about a lot. What you know? What would it have been like to meet him and and spend time with him? And we we can tell a lot from his diaries because he wrote prolifically. He started writing when he was a student at Kenyon College here in Ohio, and he wrote um, almost daily, at least two or three times a week up until the time of his death at the age of 70. He had a lot of charisma. He was a very charismatic person. Um, He he had a sense of humor. He loved people. He loved people, loved talking to people. When he and Lucy were first married, um, they loved going out to cultural events. They loved going out to lectures. Um, They lived in Columbus when he was governor of Ohio and, and same thing. But he was also a very, he was a very focused person and he was really good at compartmentalizing. He was very good at at breaking things down in in a very calm, in a very thoughtful way. He was a very analytical person. All right, I'm going to pause here for a moment to fill in a couple biographical details. So as Christy mentioned, Hayes went to Kenyon College. What she didn't mention was that he graduated first in his class. He then went on to Harvard Law School, and yes, we've seen a ton of presidents who've been lawyers, but Hayes was actually the first president who graduated from a law school. The rest had been self-taught or apprenticed. So he finishes school, moves back to Ohio, and he ends up being a criminal defense lawyer in Cincinnati. And several of the people he defends are runaway slaves. When the Civil War begins, Hayes is almost 40 years old and has three young children at home. But he said that he'd rather die in the war than live knowing that he had done nothing to help the cause. So he volunteered to fight. He ended up injured multiple times, his arm was shattered, he was hit in the head. But despite his lack of prior military experience, he actually turned out to be a pretty great military fighter and leader. I also found this little detail about him really interesting. During the war, he would pick up scraps from the battlefield because he had this sense that he was living through something historic 
and that these records should be preserved for the future and for museums someday. Anyway, I thought that was such a neat little detail that gave a window into his sense of the significance of the history he was living through. In July of 1864, while the Civil War was basically at its height, friends of his nominated him for a seat in Congress, and they encouraged him to leave the fighting to campaign for his election. What he said back to them was, and this is a quote, an officer fit for duty who at this crisis would abandon his post to electioneer for a seat in Congress ought to be scalped. So, as you can probably guess from his words, he does not leave the fighting to campaign, but he does eventually win the seat anyway. And so he goes and, and takes the seat in Congress, which his, his mother, his, his ever, ever, ever supportive mother says, you know, everybody that goes out to Washington, D.C. comes back an alcoholic. You know, you're going to go out there and you're going to become this, you know, this crooked person. And that's not what mm-hmm. happened. But when he was out in Washington, it was a fast pace. He missed his family. And so, um, you know, his, his political career very well could have ended there. I mean, he, he was looking for a way to get out of Congress. Then his name starts getting tossed around as, as governor of Ohio. And that was uh, something he eagerly embraced, mainly because he wanted to come back home. And once he was governor, then his name started getting tossed around for president of the United States. So I think if he would have been asked during his Civil War days, do you see yourself, how far do you see yourself going? I I think he never could have envisioned uh, where life would end up taking him. Is there anything in particular that you see as key to Hayes' success, key to his ascendancy up to the nation's highest office? What traits propelled him there? One is, you know, he was such an honest guy. He just didn't wheel and deal, and, and he never took advantage of political opportunities. He, If he thought somebody could do a better job than him, if he were asked to run, he would say, well, no, they're going to do a great job. Um, he, he spoke his mind. He didn't try to twist anything. The Americans at this time very concerned about government corruption. You know, there had been a number of scandals in the Grant administration. The Republicans were looking for someone who was squeaky clean. And Rutherford B. Hayes was squeaky clean. The Republican convention that year, by coincidence, took place in Cincinnati. And there were initially a handful of other politicians who were frontrunners going into the convention. But one of them was sick. A couple of them were wrapped up in corruption allegations. So then here in their backyard is Hayes, who's the governor of the state where the convention's taking place. And Hayes is known for being a war hero. He's a supporter of African-American rights. And he's a rare politician who doesn't seem to have any hint of scandal. So, bingo. (laughs) The party ends up deciding to make him the nominee. All right, so... So here we are at the election of 1876, which ended up being the most hotly contested election, presidential election in U.S. history. And so to help explain what happened, I have here in the studio the Washington Post's chief correspondent, Dan Balls. Thanks for being here, Dan. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. And, and uh, this was one whale of an election. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, before we even get into what happens in the election, 
it's remarkable even to begin with, right, that 82 percent of eligible voters actually turned out to vote in this election. When I saw that number, I was astonished. Now, I know that people voted at higher numbers in earlier elections, but for this country, that's an extraordinary number. It's not extraordinary for other countries. Other countries have turnouts that are very, very high in comparison to ours. Uh, But in comparison to modern-day elections, 82% is just so far off the charts of anything we come close to. I mean, we're we're lucky if we get close to 60% turnout at this point. And um, we've gone, we've dipped a little below 50% in, in some of the, the uh, modern elections that, that I've covered. Yeah. Um, so in this election in 76, all these people turn out to vote. And then what happens? <laughs> <laughs> why, is it, why is it so contested? Well, um, it's, I mean, it, it, first of all, it was a very nasty election. You know, we, the we, whole run up to we, it. We, we routinely mm-hmm. talk about nasty elections today, but, but this was a very the very divisive election and, and, and two very tough candidates. I mean you had Rutherford B. Hayes, who was the governor of Ohio, and you had Samuel Tilden, who was the, the governor of New York. Hayes was a war hero and and an effective governor in Ohio. Tilden was a reformer who had who had broken up the Tweed Ring in in New York, and it was at a time when Democrats, the Tilden's party, was trying to get back into the game. They had lost a lot of elections, um, and this thing went down to the wire. And in fact, Tilden won the popular vote. It was like fifty-one to forty-eight. Um, there was a third-party candidate who got one percent, but you needed one hundred and eighty-five electoral votes to win. And it was 184 for Tilden and 165 for Hayes. There were three states uh, that, that were dis- in dispute that were not called at that point, Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana. And then there was an errant elector. Uh, so you had 20 available electoral votes still to be decided. And that's where it was on the morning after the election. Extraordinary. I mean, we just we we've never seen something quite like this. So um, maybe you could just do a favor for probably a lot of listeners um, and explain how our system works, how it is that someone can win the popular vote and not be president. How this electoral <laughs> map. It, 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 it seems anti-democratic, of course, <laughs> that you know, in a, in a nation in which you know it's one person, one vote is the is the rule, uh, that the popular vote does not determine the president. But the founders came up with a different plan, and, and like so many things that happened with the with the Constitution, it, what we have is a compromise. Uh, there was one group of people, faction, that wanted the presidency to be decided by a popular vote. But there was another group that wanted it decided by the Congress. They wanted the Congress to pick the president. And so they came up with a system in which when you cast a vote in your state, you are actually helping to elect electors. You are not voting necessarily for a president. You are picking a group of electors from your state who will then cast the votes for the president. Now, historically, the way this works is you know, if you are running against me and you you win the state of Illinois, you get all of the electoral votes. The electoral votes are the combination of the number of representatives in the House and the Senate that you have. Um, and so it can end up 
that you can win the popular vote but but lose the election because you have not won a majority in the Electoral College. This has happened a few other times in our history. Four, I think four times four total, times. right? Yeah. 1824, mm-hmm. Andrew Jackson, the election we're talking okay. about, 1876, mm-hmm. and 1888, Grover Cleveland. And the one that we all remember was in 2000 when Al Gore won the popular vote, but George W. Bush won the presidency. What do we consider a close race versus what do we consider a wide margin of victory? We used to, we, we've always thought that if you, if, if the winner is over 55% or 56%, that's, that's landslide territory. And Reagan, Nixon, and, and Johnson all had huge victories. Uh, Reagan won 49 states in 1984, but the country was in a different place then. And I think a landslide today is, you know, if somebody gets 54 uh, percent, because I think that, that we're dealing in a much narrower band of possibility for each party. So in this um, in the 76 election, it's not just that, you know, it ends up remarkable that Tilden wins the popular vote, but doesn't become president. But it also I mean, the process just drags on for months and months in terms of figuring out, you know, who these remaining electoral votes should go to, right? Well, I mean, what happened was that the three disputed states mm-hmm. essentially sent up competing results to the Congress. And there was a question of how this should then be resolved. And the answer was, uh, first time and, and only time this, this has ever happened, that the Congress set up a commission, which consisted of 15 people. It was five members of the Senate, five members of the House, and five members of the Supreme Court. Now, the Senate was in Republican hands, so there were three Republicans and two Democrats from the Senate. The House was in Democratic hands, so there were three Democrats and two Republicans from the House. And the Supreme Court initially was 2-2 with a fifth person who was kind of independent, and then that person ended up not being part of it, and you ended up with three Republicans and two Democrats from the Supreme Court. As you say, this dragged on and on and on. In those days, Inauguration Day was not in January. It was in March. It was March 4th. Uh, Their decision did not come down until March 2nd, two days before Inauguration Day. And lo and behold, it was a straight party vote (laughs) as to what was going to happen. The Republicans uh, had an 8-7 to margin on the 15-member commission, and they awarded all of the disputed electoral votes uh, to Rutherford B. Hayes, and he became the president. One thing I've been thinking a lot, um, you know, working on this Hayes episode, is just how much an election, whether it's, you know, that it gets so far as to be disputed and uh, unresolved for months, or if it's just that, you know, an entire campaign up until that point is just nasty and vicious, how much an election can then end up having an influence on someone's ability to govern once they're in office. I, I think we like to believe that the system we have uh, allows for very tough, very spirited campaigns, and that once the campaign is over, the country comes back together and you know behind the new president, and that there's a honeymoon, and mm-hmm. the president is given a, a decent leeway uh, to begin to try to govern and to govern effectively. What we saw in 2000 was that that was very short-lived and, for the most part, 
didn't happen. It made it hard for Bush to govern. And I think what we've seen since is that almost no matter how these elections have come out in recent years, um, the country the country doesn't come together very easily. In fact, it, it tends to snap back into kind of the polarized uh, situation that, that we have. So um, the closer and harder fought an election, the, the more right now the feelings are, are raw and difficult to, to heal. Rutherford Hayes definitely finds this to be true as he takes on the presidency. He gets the nickname Rather Fraud, and he also gets the nickname His Fraudulency. It would have been a tough time to govern the country anyway without all of this election controversy, but the disputed election and the sense that Hayes comes into office with no firm mandate and no cohesive national support just makes it even harder. So... We're now going to explore Hayes' presidency itself in more depth, and in particular how it is that Reconstruction comes to an end during his first year in office. For this, I decided to have on as a guest here Ed Ayers. He's a historian of the American South. He's also the former president of the University of Richmond, and he's a co-host of the history podcast Backstory. Well, first of all, just thanks for talking with me, Ed. I'm delighted to. Who wouldn't want to talk about Rutherford B. Hayes? (laughs) I I can't imagine who wouldn't. Or hear about Rutherford B. Hayes, even more (laughs) importantly. So let's just start at the very beginning. Why is it that 1877, Hayes' first year in office, why is that considered the end of Reconstruction? Well, first of all, it's convenient because Reconstruction is like the most complicated period in American history. Um, But the answer to your question, uh, that is when the final troops were not actually removed from the South, even that's what we think, but removed from where they could actually uh, threaten uh, Southern whites in any significant way. Uh, And uh, this marks the official end of an effort by the Republicans in Washington uh, to reconstruct the South. After this, um, the South is pretty much solid uh, for almost another hundred years, almost to the time of uh, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s. So um, looking back on it, uh, it seems a really significant pivot. Reconstruction had been unraveling for a long time before this, and this is putting the final nail in the coffin. Well, maybe that's a a good place to then just talk a little bit about when we look at what happened in Reconstruction, what do you stand out as the most notable achievements or failures of that time period? Well, it is the period of American history that people have argued about the most and most fervently. Uh, You know, the two most popular movies in American history about Reconstruction, Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind, both of which tell a a distinctly unprogressive story and inaccurate story about Reconstruction. And I'd say, you know, for most generations since Reconstruction, the story would have been that it was a terrible mistake on the part of arrogant white Yankees to impose an unnatural order on the South. Uh, The poor South, uh, defeated after the Civil War, uh, was subjected, that story went, 
uh, to the power of uh, poorly educated, uneducated former slaves and unprincipled uh, white northerners called carpetbaggers. So for a long time, that was the story. Uh, With the Civil Rights Movement, people began to think, you know, actually the story of Reconstruction is exactly the opposite. Um, It was a time when we almost had real democracy in this country for the first time in which black men were allowed to vote, um, but that was killed by violence. What we've argued about for a long time is the extent to which there was a real possibility of real democracy in the post-slave South. And Reconstruction did its very best uh, from the context of the mid of the 19th century to try to restore or actually create a, a fair order. Now, this will resonate a little bit with those of us who are living through current history and thinking about what the United States has tried to do in the Middle East in some ways. You have a society that has been based on a different social organization, in the case of the South, 250 years of human bondage, that is suddenly being transformed into a democratic state. So Reconstruction worked on lots of different levels, on sort of on the ground. It created the Freedmen's Bureau, which was basically a refugee organization that would use army surplus to sustain people who were starving and sick. Uh, It also created schools for the freed people who had never had the opportunity for education before and also adjudicated contracts between former slave owners and former slaves who are now free laborers. So you got all that going on, plus you have new constitutions that have to be installed that create the 14th Amendment. If you're born in America, you're an American citizen. So that's a lot to happen in a few years of history uh, to oversee the sudden freedom of four million people who've been held in slavery, try to put the country back together again. And Rutherford B. Hayes comes in uh, about two-thirds of the way through that story. Yeah, so maybe could you paint a little bit of a picture of when Hayes comes into the White House, you know, what the country looks like at that point in time? Oh, it's a mess, (laughs) you know. So it's partly a mess because of the way he comes in the White House. But in 1876, not only do you have the lingering wounds of the American Civil War and the lingering wounds of 250 years of slavery. But you also have the wounds of the largest depression, economic depression in American history up to that time. That came in 1873. uh, And the largest labor revolt in American history uh, that's building just as Hayes comes into office. So things are really tough. I mean, the only good thing is the centennial (laughs) of the founding of the country. And there's a a big fair where they celebrate that in Philadelphia. But generally, people would have looked around kind of like they did back at the bicentennial in 1976 in the United States and said, boy, how far we've fallen. Everything seems to be a mess. And the other thing you have is uh, warfare against American Indians in the West. So wherever you look in the country, uh, the year that Rutherford B. Hayes is becoming president is really one of the sort of most ragged in American history. So one thing that I've been reading are what seem like very conflicting accounts about this compromise of 1877, where the story in some cases goes that Democratic and Republican leaders strike a deal that if they declare Hayes the winner of the election, that he'll end up basically withdrawing remaining troops um, 
from the South. Is there is there any truth to this compromise of 1877 story? Yeah, there's some truth to it. I think the easiest way to understand all this without going into all the excruciating details is that almost everyone in a position of power who was white <laughs> had decided that Reconstruction was about ready to end. Um, it had already basically ended uh, in every southern state but two where there were still uh, still United States soldiers. You know, think about 1876 means that we're now, you know, over a decade from the end of the Civil War. And uh, a lot of white northerners are saying, look, we've got this big economic depression. Things are terrible here. We have things we should be doing enough already with trying to remake the South. So I think the story that we get in the textbook is that the Republicans, um, you know, gave up Reconstruction to the Democrats. The fact was is that a lot of Republicans were ready for Reconstruction to be over, wanted economic development anyway. And the white South said, look— great, if you'll leave and leave us in charge, you can be in charge of the, re- of the country. Um, and what we want to be in charge of is race relations and control our own society. So there is a bargain, but it's a bargain of many hands, including many voters, uh, who are basically saying we're exhausted with Reconstruction. And so Hayes knows this is the case, that there's not really a future for the Republicans to keep fighting for all these votes to protect the rights of black men in the South to vote who are being killed and who are being threatened and who are being um, kept from jobs and who are being assaulted, uh, whose families are being assaulted. Um, And basically the white South has just worn down the Republicans so much. So is there a deal? Yeah, but Hayes is actually okay with making the deal. It's not that he's reluctantly doing this. This is a way to actually move on, as as they would see it. So, what's your take on Hayes's presidency? What do you what do you think are some of the bright spots? What are some of the places where you see some leadership failing? Yeah, I mean, uh, the analogy that comes to mind to me is Gerald Ford coming to the presidency after Watergate. Hayes is coming after an election which people had threatened to reignite the Civil War. Um, And the last thing that he wants to do is stir things up. So what Hayes believes in is good government, and he takes some of the early steps towards civil service reform in which people uh, have office because they pass a test, they show they're capable of it, not because they happen to have a certain position in the political party. the other thing that he does is he actually tries to make peace with the South. He takes a Southern tour and tries to sort of knit the country back together. Uh, he helps put the country back on the gold standard. So Hayes would have been seen as a great voice of conservatism, not in the way we know it today, but as in not really doing very much to not uh, rock the boat. He would have seen that his role as making government uh, cleaner, uh, more accountable, and to avoid some of the chaos that had frankly surrounded his own election. And he he does seem, though, to have been, you know, personally to have held pretty strong anti-slavery views and um, perhaps in a, a different context could have pushed more radically for the rights of African Americans. No, that's right. I mean, he was, as far as I know, a great guy. You're right. He was on record as being an advocate for African Americans. 
And I think that the calculation that he and his party made was that they had done what they could to create the vote for black Americans um, and that they weren't willing to enforce it with military power, which seemed to be the only way that it would succeed. You know, he he's often seen, I think, as sort of, you know, stabbing black people in the back. And he did in the sense that he acted on behalf of the Republican Party that was moving away from advocating for the rights of black Americans. So it's not something he led. That was not his cause. He was not he wasn't in the room when any kind of compromise was struck. I think he and the rest of the Republican leadership saw it as their responsibility to restore some kind of calm and order to the United States that seemed to be coming apart at the seams. And by seams, I mean between the Democrats and the Republicans, between workers and employers, between blacks and whites, between the North and the South, between uh, white people and American Indians. In all these different ways, the country really just seemed to be in chaos. And I think Hayes saw himself as a kind of calming influence. And you could argue that that's what he did. You could also argue that he sort of lent his name to calming something that shouldn't have been calmed, which was the determination of black Southern men to have a political voice. Knowing what we know now um, and looking back, what kind of presidential leadership do you think we could have used at the time? You know, by the time Hayes is coming along, so you've had you know Andrew Johnson, who's often considered the worst president in American history, and then Grant, who was uh, one of the most popular American presidents of all time, but whose second term ended in corruption or widespread charges of it and kind of in and charges of incompetence. You could argue that Hayes is what the country wanted in 1876. Uh, he was one of a long line of Civil War veterans. He was one of a long line of governors. He was one of a long line of men who were deeply embedded in their party. Could he have inspired his party to do more? It's not clear that he could have, frankly. Uh, the white South was so dug in against the rights of black Americans, and the Republican Party was so exhausted and also so uh, determined now to cast its lot with the North and the West and with economic development um, that you could see Hayes more as a symbol than as an agent. But what about in terms of, you know, what president, what type of president you think we needed? Let's put it this way. There was nobody in the constellation of people that people were talking about as president who had been any better, I don't think. You know, uh, and, you know, basically black Americans were abandoned uh, by white America, including by the white North, for generations after this. I do think that Hayes is important in seeing that the hyper-partisanship that drove all American politics uh, could be stabilized to some extent by civil service reform. We've gotten so used now to the idea of our federal government being um, peopled by uh, competent, uh, experienced, uh, disinterested uh, civic servants that we've forgotten that that began sometime. And I think we need to give uh, Rutherford B. Hayes some credit for understanding that that needed to be part of the future of America. Civil service reform would basically end up making government work a career, with entrance tests, a merit system, 
and it would do away with the spoil system that had previously been in place where politicians could just dole out jobs to their friends and allies. The Civil Service Reform Act would officially take a few more years to pass once Hayes was out of office, but Hayes began the efforts. Also while he was in office, as Ed alluded to, railroad workers went on a massive strike when the railroad companies cut their wages. The railroad company leaders turned to Hayes and urged him to send in federal troops to stop the workers from striking. But as president, Hayes refused to side with the railroad leaders and to break up the workers' strikes. When he left the presidency, Hayes remained really active, actually possibly even more proactive on social issues than he was his presidency. He created education funds for black and white students in the South. He pushed for federal subsidies for poor students. He argued against the death penalty. He came out in favor of the inheritance tax to redistribute wealth. And one of his most passionate causes became prison reform. Hayes was the first president of the National Prison Reform Association, and he went around the country giving advocacy speeches about the links between crime and poverty until his death. Many thanks to this week's guests, Christy Weininger, Ed Ayers, and my colleague Dan Balls. Original music is by Dave Westner. Next week is all about James Garfield, and it'll be a really interesting but also pretty dark episode since we'll be talking about his assassination. It prompted civil service reform to actually pass, finally, and his death also prompted a reform in medical practice in this country, which we'll talk about as well. I will find you here next week, and thank you so much as always for listening to the Presidential Podcast. Hi there, Lillian again. If you're enjoying Presidential, check out another podcast I made right afterward called Constitutional. It's a deep dive into the story of our country's founding document. From abolition and civil rights to suffragists and the fight for the 19th Amendment. Women should have the vote because it's unjust, shameful, and cowardly for men to deprive women of that they demand for themselves. It explores the revolutionary figures who advanced our understanding of free speech, religious freedom, the right to bear arms, immigration. Native American rights. For the first time in the 103-year history of the United States, a federal judge had declared that an Indian, from that point forward, would have to be regarded as a person. And it takes you back in time to the original battle of ideas at the Constitutional Convention. There was nothing dry or dusty about it. This is the most radical body of democratic deliberation ever assembled. These struggles, from 1787 all the way up to today, constitute the story of America. 
You can listen to The Constitutional Podcast at WashingtonPost.com slash constitutional. Or you can find it on whatever your favorite podcast platform is.